You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Hello again, and welcome again to Faith Presbyterian Church. My name is John. If I've not met you, I'd like to meet you. Uh, maybe we can try and catch each other at the, uh, at the end of the worship service, even if there's only uh, just enough time to uh, share one another's uh, names. Thanks for, uh, for being here this morning. Uh, little theologians, thank you for being here. Of course, you didn't have a choice. You can't drive. You had to come here. Um, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to read to you and then preach to you out of Luke chapter 8. We're looking at Luke's gospel, as you know. I want you to try and draw for me a uh, loud noise. Right? It's not my job. It's your job to figure out how to do that. A loud noise. Now, towards the end of this passage and the end of the sermon, we're going to give a name for that noise. It is the declaration of the gospel. At the very end of our passage, you'll see the word, you'll hear the word declared. But I want you to draw a picture of a loud noise. We're, we're looking this morning in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 8, it is a scene that is ordinarily subtitled, uh, Jesus heals a man with a demon. Sometimes um, demoniac uh, shows up as a subtitle in uh, older translations. It begins at verse 26. So Luke 8.26 is where we're going to look. If you don't have a Bible, I guess Justin has already taken care of that. Uh, we do have Bibles here. Uh, those of you who've heard me preach several times know that I keep going back to individual verses to show you a word. If you don't have a Bible, Justin can get a Bible to you. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. We want to do this. We want to read uh, even before we, or we want to pray even before we read God's word. Let's pray together. Our wonderful Jesus, thank you for speaking to us, making your word known to us, living it, but by your spirit preserving it. And Holy Spirit, instructing us in our deepest heart. God, thank you for ministering to us in this way, to the glory of our Lord. Amen. Again, Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. We'll look at this whole scene. 8.26. Then they sailed to the country of Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. 
Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right man, in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Remember, this is the word of our Lord. Well, one thing that we have to remember as we look at this passage is that it is Jesus who is in charge of everything that is happening. And that's that frame of reference is what I want us to be thinking about as we look at this passage, because there are a lot of conflicting missions in this passage. And by mission, I mean a plan. There is an intention. There's an intentionality of God and His servant Jesus. There is an intentionality in the demons, uh, Legion, and there is an intentionality in the people of the Gerasenes. And I want us to uh, consider that uh, everyone has a mission of some sort. All of us has some kind of plan. Uh, the most uh, profound and evangelical or uh, evangelistic atheist has some kind of plan for their life. And it may be that their plan for their life doesn't extend beyond the afterlife. But we all have a mission. We all have this deep, resonant motivation that, uh, that guides what we think and what we say and what we do. And even the person who says, I have no plan at all, I just uh, float on the, uh, the breeze of the air, well, that's a plan, isn't it? To never frustrate that breeze, but to always go with that breeze. Uh, everyone has some kind of mission and intentionality in their lives. Christian and non-Christian. And it ought not be a surprise that we could look in this passage and we could discern this mission of God, this mission of uh, Legion, this mission of the Gerasenes. And that's how I want to structure the sermon. Everybody has a mission. Let's look and see what the missions are, what missions are revealed to us in this passage. And I want to begin with God and then the, the Gerasenes, the people that Jesus goes to, and then the mission of Legion. That's the first half of the sermon. And the second half of the sermon, I want to reverse that list. I want to consider the mission of Legion and the mission of the Gerasenes and finish with the mission of God. So we begin and we end where I think this passage begins and ends with God's mission. God's mission in the beginning of our passage is for Jesus to continue what was begun. It was Jesus who directs the disciples to get into the boat in the first place. We saw that last week. And they all get into the boat together. And it's Jesus who has set the course for the, for the other side of the lake. Now, He doesn't tell us why He is going to the other side. But Jesus points the boat in its direction dictating what is to happen, following faithfully the will of His heavenly Father. And not only that, we saw last week that Jesus guaranteed that they would arrive at their destination safely. 
We can look in the Gospel prior to Luke chapter 8 and we can discern in Luke 8.1 and in Luke 4.43 Jesus' statement that His mission is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke 4.43, Luke 8.1. We're told what Jesus is up to. And that much we have to believe. Jesus is leading His disciples in such a way that He goes from village to village, from part of the country to part of the country to, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. Surely we have to see that that is the mission of Jesus. Surely that's exactly where we're going to come at the end of the passage. But notice it at the beginning. Jesus is taking the initiative to lead His disciples But there's also something else that happened in that passage that we looked at last week. His disciples have been bruised. They've been bruised. Remember on the boat, they were terrified. They thought that they were going to go to the bottom of the sea. This boat was going to flood. The water was going to come over the gunnels of that boat. The water was going to come over uh, their own hearts and drown them. We are perishing. We are perishing. And Jesus looks at them and He says, where is your faith? And then He displays that He is an appropriate one to follow because with His Word, He brings calm to that tempestuous water. He stops the opponent of the wind and the water. And the disciples are bruised. But Jesus, as He goes from village to village to proclaim the good news of the Gospel of Jesus, at the same time, He's encouraging His disciples. He doesn't leave them. He doesn't tell them, y'all stay in the boat because you're not qualified to be with me anymore. After that little bit that you all did when the sea was rough, I'm not with you anymore. Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God, but at the same time, He's gathering His disciples around Him and He's nurturing them. He's caring for them. And He's going to show them again why He is an appropriate object of affection. Proclaiming the gospel comforting His disciples. Do you think that you are a hard worker? That good old-fashioned Protestant work ethic. Do you work harder than everyone else at your job? No one works harder than Jesus. Look how tenacious He is. He marks out a plan. The weather doesn't stop Him. And we're about to see that no element of the spiritual world is able to stop Him. He will complete His work. He will do what He has set out to do. This is the mission that drives the entire story. Real quickly, would you look at verse 27 and would you notice that it is Jesus who puts His foot on the sand? It's remarkable that Luke would give us that detail in verse 27. We really do have this sense that Jesus is directing all uh, all the steps and then His step touches the sand. And what's very interesting is the first one to meet Him is actually the man who has a demon. And it's a very abrupt meeting. As soon as Jesus steps on the land, there is a man who meets Him. We're going to talk about Him a bit later. But for now, let's consider what exactly the mission of this people group is. The the Gerizines, they're mentioned in verse 26 and in verse 37. And there's two cities in this region. And as we look at Matthew, this is one of those synoptic stories. When we look at uh, Mark and Matthew, we see that sometimes it's Gerasa and sometimes it's Gadara. And there are two cities that are in this region. 
And the way I make sense of that is that Jesus is going to do something big for not just one city, the city of Gerasa, but also the city of Gadara. For in fact, the entire region. So we find in our passage the country of the Gerasenes. There is a people group here represented by two cities and perhaps some outlying villages. And Jesus comes to do a work in this entire region. It's a Gentile region to be sure. But something is wrong with these people. They have a problem, a challenge. One of their own, a native, a homegrown boy, not the kid of a foreigner, but one of their own kids, is ill. He needs healing. If you look in verse 39, Jesus sends him back to his own home, to your home. This man who has demons working in him, this man is a homegrown boy, a native kid. This is where he grew up. This is his home. And the Gerasenes know that this man, they probably know his father, they probably know his brothers, his sisters, his grandparents. This one of their own is sick. And they don't know what to do with him. Now, on the one hand, I'd like to describe them as a very compassionate body of people, but I don't think that that's what the passage tells us. If we were to understand what the the mission of the Gerasenes is, it is to control this kid or man. To control him. Something is wrong with him. And we need to somehow hem him in. And so verse 29 says that one of their great and grand solutions is to set guards over him. Imagine that. Imagine the expense to the city. We're paying guards to just keep an eye, an eye on him. For how long? Until he's correct in his mind. It could be his entire life. What do you think about that as a solution? Let's set guards on him. And not only that, let's bind him with chains and with shackles. Is that compassionate? They're completely at their wit's end. They don't know what to do to keep themselves safe from this wild man, one of their own. But you know, everything that they do is imperfect. So if we were to ascertain what their mission was, it would be somehow to control the spirit world. Something's wrong with that kid. We don't fully understand it, but we're going to control it to keep ourselves safe. That's their mission. And every now and again, this man will become empowered by an evil spirit and break the chains, have superhuman strength. And it must be a bloody sight to behold. These shackles tearing into his wrists as he pulls and tugs at these chains to break himself free. He's naked. He's bleeding. He's not in his right mind. And these people can't heal him. He's an embarrassment. And he's also a source of consternation. What are they to do with this man? It's beyond medical help, this one. And he runs naked in the tombs. And they got to keep an eye on him. 24-7. What is their mission? To control the spirit world. There's something out there that isn't right. A philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor, I've quoted him before, 
wrote a very big book called The Secular Age, um, and he said a lot of very helpful things in terms of ascertaining what exactly it means to live in a secularized world. And Charles Taylor uh, intellectually is trying to wrap his own mind about uh, around what, it, what modernism is. And he's using as his benchmark really Western Europe and the degree to which secularism has won all of the cultural battles. And one of the things he says is he says that modernism, secularism, rids the world of any of its enchantedness. He says there is an enchanted world that the ancients would have believed in, would have assumed was there. But modernism has done away with the enchanted world. And in fact, what Charles Taylor says is he says that modern man and woman have created a buffer between their own identity and the spirit world. And the buffer is thick enough to where nothing out there that's unknown they really need to deal with. It doesn't impact them individually. He says that the ancient world didn't have this buffered self, but rather a porous self. There was an understanding that there's more to the world than the things that I understand. There are great things out there. There are things that I'm not sure of. The afterlife. I'm not sure where humankind came from. But Charles Taylor says that with the advent of secularism, he says no one worries about that anymore. And the ancients would look at us and they would say that we were insane. How crazy it would be to assume that there isn't something that's bigger than just the physical world. How did it all get here? There are things that you don't know the ancient would say to us. And if we want to understand the mission of the Gerizim Gentiles, we would say that their mission is to control the spirit world. They're modernists. There's nothing that happens around them that they don't understand. And they take this man and they relegate him to the tombs outside the quietness, the orderliness of their city. What's real is what we understand. And that's how we'll live our lives. Isn't that remarkable? Well, the one who actually meets Jesus on the shore is the man who is being influenced by more than one demon. And it's hard to tell if there's more than one demon in him as an expression of strength. This man needs to be controlled by several demons. Or if it's an expression of weakness, one demon's not strong enough to do it. But the man is influenced by more than one demon and we understand that a demon is simply an evil angel. And to understand what the mission of a demon is, is simply this, is to oppose every word and work of God. You see, legion is assuming control over that which belongs to God. God created man. The pinnacle, in fact, of His creation. And God has a purpose for man. He has a purpose for man in the Garden of Eden. And who is it that immediately opposes that purpose? It is Satan, the father of devils, who opposes God by trying trying to take from God that which is precious to Him. To take God's people away from Him. To shift their allegiance. Causing them to doubt God that they might then have faith in Him. That's what Legion is doing. This might be a little bit too playful, but imagine this. A Legion is an aggressive corporate takeover. He sees what's going on and he inserts himself that he might take away that which belongs to God. How interesting that we would be told by the Holy Spirit that this man is robbed of his dignity. He runs around naked. The clothing of Adam and Eve are a gift from God. 
that they would be clothed, that they would be sustained in this life. And it is God who kills the first animal that their shame would be covered. And Legion removes the covering. And the man runs about naked. How interesting that the Spirit would give us that detail. How interesting that the Spirit would give us the detail that uh, Legion brings this man close to his own tomb. Remember, he grew up here. His family likely has a tomb in that very hillside that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Legion always takes him. Not promising life to him, but promising to him death. Promising to him curse. Promising to him the fallenness of humankind. Removing his dignity. Removing his future. It's the demons that meet Jesus on the shore. To be sure they're threatened... They know who Jesus is, Son of the Most High God. There is no reservation at all. The Gerasenes have all kinds of reservations. They don't know who this man is, why he is here, why he is able to do the weird things that he does. Jesus comes, they say the same things about him. But the demons understand. They meet him on the shore and they are afraid. Because this is the only one that can put an end to who they are. What's the mission of Legion? To live to oppose another day. To live another day that they might oppose the word and work of God. That is the mission of Legion. Let me reverse the order. Started with God to the Gerasenes to Legion. What's the only mission that actually works? Do any of these missions actually work? Let's continue talking about Legion and ask that question. Does his mission work? You see, demons are created spiritual beings who have rebelled. They're fallen angels. 2 Peter 2.4 is a great proof text for what exactly a demon is. 2 Peter 2.4. And there Peter tells us that some angels have sinned. That's what a demon is, an angel who has sinned. And then another proof text, there's just these two I think that are most important. Jude verse 6. You should write that as well. Jude verse 6 tells us that there are angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling. You see, God created the spiritual world that the spiritual world would have a proper dwelling and serve God's will. And it is in God's wisdom that He allowed uh, some of the spiritual realm to rebel against Him. Satan is a fallen angel. Jesus says in Matthew 25 that Satan is the one who have, who's dragged all the others behind him. Matthew 25 says that uh, Satan has many devils that follow him. The devil and his angels is what Jesus says. And Legion's desire is to oppose and to destroy every work of God. It may take lying, it may take deception. It may take, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, the blinding of the eyes of unbelievers. But fallen angels have one clear task, to frustrate and oppose the will and word of God. You know, as I have studied demons, I've wondered what exactly are the questions most likely to be asked when we consider a passage like this. It's not the first one in the Gospels. And I just want to handle one of those questions. And one of those questions, I think, would be this. Is it possible for a Christian to be possessed by a demon? And let me just say that I don't think that this phrase, a demon possession, shows up in Scripture. 
I understand that uh, there is a passage that we have just read that refers to apparently a demon possession. But what we know is we know that this demon has an ability to work on this man at some times. I think it's inappropriate and unbiblical to say that this demon can entirely possess this man. So the question then becomes, is it possible for a demon to possess a Christian? I don't like the phrase possession at all. Is it possible for a demon to indwell a Christian? And we don't seem to have a biblical example of that. The closest we can come is James 4.7. And what James tells us there is that Christians have an ability to resist the evil one. This is a man who is not a believer This is a man who has been blinded by legion. This is a man who is not entirely controlled by legion. The only one who has entire control is God. But there's something very honest about legion's mission. His mission is to frustrate God. But legion doesn't have a chance. Look at verse 32. It is Jesus who gives the demons permission to leave God's cherished creation alone and to enter an unclean animal, a pig or a herd of pigs. One wonders if Legion has read the Bible and he says, God's word says that these animals are unclean. I will presume that Jesus will allow me to go into them if no other animal. These are animals that God's word says are unholy, unclean. So Legion's mission doesn't bear fruit, does it? Legion gives up his mission, it seems, but only temporarily. And he disappears from the scene, thwarted by Jesus, the mission of God. And Legion leaves. So Legion gives up his mission, but perhaps only temporarily. I'll say a little bit more about that a a bit later. What about the Gerasenes? They refuse to give up their mission. Skip forward to verse 35. The people finally come out to see what has happened. In verse 27, the man who has the demon speaks to Jesus rapidly. But it's not until verse 35 that the people come out to see what has happened. And they come to Jesus and they find that their neighbor has been made well. And verse 37 says that all of the people, the surrounding country, want Jesus to what? To speak to them, to teach them, to minister to them. I don't have a demon. My problems are smaller. But if He can help that man, He can help me. But verse 37 says that all of the people want Jesus to leave. You know, In Mark's Gospel, he makes plain that they are concerned about the loss of property. Who knows the value of that herd of pigs that has been killed? But in Luke's Gospel, he doesn't bring to light the the feeling of loss of property, but rather says that they were utterly afraid. They were terrified. I believe what's happened is they realize that the world is more complex than they imagined. You know, as we go out into the world and we describe to people the hope within us as Christians, Many are going to find us to be foolish and absurd. But there will come a time, there will come a time when they won't find us to be foolish and absurd. But right now, that's how the people find Jesus. This is all pointless. We've controlled that man with a demon. We'll control the one who has fought the demon. It's not a problem. 
would you please leave us? And their mission to control the spiritual world, to be the masters of their own world, that mission continues. If you read Romans chapter 1 a couple of times, I believe you find described there the Gerizim people. They're the kind of people who God has made Himself plain to them, but they don't honor Him. God declares His presence, declares who He is, but they exchange the truth, they suppress the truth, they claim to be wise. Paul says in Romans 1 that they are futile in their thinking. Romans 1 is a paradox that describes where we are today. God has made Himself known. The church may be weak. The the number of martyrs for Christ Jesus may actually be growing. She may look pathetic. She may be fun to laugh at, this church of Jesus Christ. But you are not wise. God is making Himself known. And part of Him making Himself known is giving to the world the gift of the church. Now would the church go into that world and proclaim the gospel of grace, even though the world will look at us and laugh and call us unwise? It is the paradox of our contemporary setting. It is the paradox of the Gerasenes. I don't want to hear any more about this spiritual stuff. We were far happier when none of this happened. How remarkable that they would send Jesus away the one who brought health to one of their own, and they send him away. It's the paradox of our own culture, is it not? Let's return then to God's mission. God's mission would seem to take a remarkable turn, wouldn't it? The Gospel seems to hit a brick wall at the very beginning of our passage in that Jesus is greeted immediately by the spirit world. And then at the very end of the passage, it would seem as though the Gerasenes agree with Legion. They want Jesus to leave as well. They don't say, don't torment us, don't send us into the abyss. Why not? Why wouldn't they? That's what the demon says. Jesus, don't torment me, don't send me into the abyss. They don't even acknowledge that He has that power. They simply send Him away. But what's remarkable is that even though He is sent away, the gratitude of the Gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. Little theologians, this is why I ask you to to draw for me a really loud noise. Because the one who has been delivered of the demons comes to Jesus and he begs to, uh, to join Jesus. The demon begs for his own preservation, the ability to continue to work his mission, but it's remarkable that this man begs to be a part of Jesus' mission. I no longer want my mission, I want to go with you. And he begs Jesus that he can be with him. The gratitude of the gospel can't be stopped. Not only the declaration of the gospel, but the gratitude of the gospel cannot be stopped. Imagine this man hearing Jesus say in verse 39, to return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. You know, sometimes we think that the Apostle Paul just came out of the womb a genius. And, you know, geniuses get into the front line of conversion, right? I mean, if you're a genius and you're converted, you just get special praise as a Christian. You must be a better Christian than all of us because you have a Ph.D. from Harvard or Yale. 
Maybe that's too raw, but I, I sense that's how the church views Christian intellectuals. And we tend to think of Paul as that kind of individual. He just came out really smart, and when he becomes a Christian, you know, he's just an uber-Christian. But it, it should be remarkable for you to hear that the advice the disciples in Jerusalem gave to Saul of Tarsus was to go back home. You have a great message. Love you preaching this message. You've been doing it for two years, but you need to go home. And they send him to Tarsus. Because all those people know what you were like before you were a follower of Jesus Christ. Now go to those people who know your past and preach the Gospel to them. And Jesus does that in verse 39. He takes this man whose wrists are permanently scarred and He sends him to go preach the Gospel to a people who have seen him naked as an adult. Who have seen him at his worst. Those are the people He has to go to. And sometimes we think that we're on our left foot, if you're right-handed, on our left foot proclaiming the Gospel. We don't really have what it takes. And I would agree with you, you really don't have what it takes. But it's not your mouth that changes the Gospel. This man, whom everyone has seen is naked, a man who has been kicked out of his own home, has got a full plate. He's got to go back and put together his life. Reconnect with perhaps his kids? his siblings, his parents, begin living indoors. It's been a while. The man's got a full plate. And Jesus doesn't seem to care. I want you to go into that city and regardless of what's on your plate, I want you to proclaim what I have done. What I have done. You know, this is not just an, uh, an encouragement to you. It's an encouragement to me. Being on your left foot as a proclaimer of the Gospel, that's okay. Because this man was sent home. I want to finish the sermon with this heading here. Uh, the mission today. You know, I've only said part of it. And that is that Jesus says to the man, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. But that verse isn't over. Verse 39. We're told that he went away. He obeyed. He followed this Jesus in a different way than getting on the boat. He went away proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. My brother and sister in Christ, this is your task. What has Jesus done for you? And perhaps the, the problem of our evangelism is that we don't dwell enough on what exactly it is that Jesus has done for us. Let me remind you. Jesus Christ took your sin and wore it on His own back. And at the cross... He wore that sin out. He wore it to death. He was utterly perfect, but that cross transaction has Him taking your sin on His own back and drinking down all of His heavenly Father's wrath for that law-breaking nature. But the transaction's not over. As you've come to faith in Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit, Jesus covers you with His righteousness. That's the other half of the transaction. He takes your sin upon His back, drinks down God's wrath, but He takes His own righteousness and it's poured out on you that your filth would be covered. And He continues to minister to you. And He waits for you on that last day when He will receive you. All of your sins have already been acquitted, but He will speak it with His lips. Your sins are acquitted. And you'll live with Him for all eternity. 
He went away proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Christian, that's what Jesus has done for you. Well, this is God's Word, of course. Let's uh, go to Him in prayer, asking that the Spirit would continue to instruct us and also asking that the Spirit would be with us as we ordain Jeff. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You for speaking to us. Holy Spirit, minister this Word to us deeply. May the greatness of our Lord's work come to mind. May it come to mind so frequently that, that, that it pushes out other thoughts. So blown away we are by Jesus' good work for us. And Holy Spirit, would you be with us as we uh, ordain a man whom you have called to minister to us as a congregation, as an elder that belongs to Jesus. Be with us, Holy Spirit. Not for our glory, but for the glory of our wonderful Savior. Amen.